0: Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident person with hemophilia. Thanks for tuning in to episode 18. Our topic today, social determinants of health in hemophilia. We kick off the episode right after this quick word from our featured advertiser.
1: Sanofi seeks to break barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science, so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. As he sat at the bus stop,
0: Miguel wondered how he was gonna pay for both the car repair and medicine. Since Miguel lives with hemophilia, prophylactic injections are important but if he doesn't repair his car, his commute to work will take two hours one way. He sat there doing money math in his head, lost in his own thoughts. He secretly hoped perhaps some charity or organization would be able to help him, provide him with some type of financial relief or some type of compassionate, free of cost medicine. Without a car, there would be no job and no money to pay rent. Without his medicine, Miguel's health would be at risk. Overwhelmed and disheartened by his dilemma, Miguel stood up and began to walk home. Perhaps he'd think of something clever as he walked. Perhaps he'd trip, fall, and need to use his last dose of factor at home to treat the injury, he thought. His brain beginning to panic. Deep breath, Papa. The welcomed voice of his daughter rang in his head. Deep breaths, Papa. Deep breaths. He'd always been able to figure things out up until this point. There had to be a way out of this, too. But how? Living with hemophilia is not easy, but it can be managed well with treatment in a supportive environment. But what does one do when the odds are stacked against them? Non-medical factors such as access to healthcare, access to education, and economic stability affect our health. It's not a joke to say that your zip code influences your health. Social and community context impact health outcomes. That's fact persons of color, members of the LGBTQIA community, and underserved communities of all sorts often face difficulties in accessing healthcare. Today, we will discuss social determinants of health and hemophilia with our experts from the public health domain, the medical community, as well as with patient advocates. So without further ado, let's begin with introductions.
2: Hi everyone, my name is Karina Lopez and I am the Project Management Specialist at the National Hemophilia Foundation. I've been at the National Hemophilia Foundation for about eight years now, and about a year ago, I completed my master's in public health. So my interest is in the health equity research
3: realm. Hi, everyone. My name is Marissa Melton. I have been with NHF for about a year now. I just actually, similar to Karina, finished my master's in public health about a year ago. And my passion within this field really lies within the community engagement programming, how can we create and ensure inclusive programming for the diverse populations that we're serving, as well as really engaging our Hispanic and LGBTQIA communities. Hi
4: everyone, I'm Donna. I'm the director of research at the World Federation of Hemophilia. And so my interest is really in research and data collection We do some data collection around social determinants of health.
5: Hi, uh, my name is Adrian Palau Tejeda. I am the Senior Manager for Health Disparities and Engagement at the Hemophilia Federation of America. And my work primarily focuses on supporting our member organizations as they tackle health equity and health disparities both at the local and national level.
6: Hi, I'm Carrie Norris, the Vice President of Health Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the National Hemophilia Foundation. I have worked in the area of health equity, diversity and inclusion for about 20, 24 years now. So very excited to join the conversation. Most of my experience is around chronic disease and some infectious disease, but I have thoroughly enjoyed working within the bleeding and blood disorder space for the past two years.
7: Hi, my name is Mosey Williams. I am a hemophilia social worker with Uh, University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. I work with the adult population with bleeding disorders, and I also have severe hemophilia A with an inhibitor myself.
0: Welcome to all of our contributors. This is an exceptional group to have assembled to discuss what is a critical topic for discussion. We dive into social determinants of health and hemophilia and inherited bleeding disorders right after this quick break.
1: Globally, approximately 75 percent of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries. An important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit sanofihemophilia.com.
0: Welcome back. Okay. Let's start with the definition of social determinants. How are social drivers defined by health organizations? And do these social determinants influence data collection? So, when we talk about social drivers, most
6: times when we're talking about healthcare systems, things interacting with medical factors that affect our health outcomes. And these are things in the space of where we live, work, play socialize, where we age. We're talking about our social support networks, education systems. We're talking providers, things of that nature. We're also talking about those environmental factors, lifestyle and behavior. We're also thinking about the geographic region in which we live and what we have access to, and also what we don't have access to in those particular regions. We're also thinking about those things that we can't control, our race, our ethnicity, our age, things of that nature and other demographic factors, such as socioeconomic status and also gender identity.
4: So, the data that we gather is really around identifying the gaps in care and starting to look at what's feeding into those gaps in care between countries. So, a lot of it is economic, a lot of it is they just don't have the healthcare structure. But we're also looking at women a lot more now where we used to focus only on males. We're looking at employment loss due to a bleeding disorder, delays in diagnosis, which is part of the healthcare structure, and quality of life. So we're starting to get into the more social determinants of health versus at the base, it's like access to care and access to treatment. And we're expanding out now, looking at different populations, starting to research within all of those populations a bit more.
5: Thank you. I think going back to what Carrie said about status, uh, we have to really understand what status means for individuals and how it affects their health outcomes. That can be your geographic location, isolation, proximity to treatment centers and or hospitals. That can be your social, that can be your economic status. That can be your race and ethnicity. That can be the series of interlocking aspects that make up you as a person, and each of those interlocking statuses has an impact on your health. So when we think of disease and illness, we have to consider how those those stressors, those statuses impact our general health and our health outcomes. So for an individual who is, let's say, living in a food desert, they may have health complications or diseases as a result of lack of proper nutrition, diseases, disease states, and/or health impacts.
0: Very well explained. Healthy People 2030 was a project focused on social determinants and deciding priorities,
6: wasn't it? So, with Healthy People 2030, so that people who are objective that everyone should strive for, and then putting it in writing are champions or, or places that are considered centers of excellence are all held to this standard that we can't just gloss over this. It's not an optional thing that we can kind of pick from the smorgasbord, whether or not we pay attention to it, because unfortunately here in the U.S., that's what we've done. In the past and it hasn't worked and it continues to leave several populations and communities behind, including the bleeding disorders community and the blood disorders community. And so in that aspect, they had to prioritize that we have to pay attention to these things that they're going to put into place goals and milestones for us to strive for in order to consider ourselves champions or in order to continue to be called centers of excellence, we have to strive towards addressing these sometimes institutional and sometimes systemic issues that are in place, which unfortunately started at the very foundation of this country. Some of the improprieties that have happened, looking at racism, and its place within the country, looking at things like slavery and also law allowed and things of that nature. We could go on and on with multiple examples, but it comes into play with access to where health centers are located. It comes into play with access to looking at some of the red taping as it pertains to where people are allowed to buy homes and redlining of where loans are in this country and afford the care that they should be entitled to how people can get to and from their doctor's appointments if people can afford insurance just by being citizens of this country. In addition to looking at implicit bias of providers, we're not saying all providers are coming out and they're like, oh, we don't want to deal with this segment of the population. But realistically, every single person, including people, we have not all been raised the same. So being steeped in your own lived experience, then provides the on this call. We all have bias. We did not grow up the same. We do not have the same aspect of access and it's extremely important that we put it on the map and that we're asking others and challenging them, foundation for how you interact with others, how you see others and also how you treat others. And I think it's to rise to the occasion, that's the only way that we're going to move towards equity for all.
7: Yeah. As an African-American man and also a man with a disability, in a sense, it's a, I feel like a, a double minority. And so there are due to the society we live in there, I guess there's a lot of occasions, unfortunately, to be maligned and that there wouldn't be necessarily equity, whether it's in terms of physical access, have some physical challenges due to hemophilia and whether it's accessing stairs or different things like that. Those are challenges on the insurance system with health. And as a black man, the way that in certain settings, if I'm, I feel I maybe have been treated differently due to that. After having surgery, am trying to get medication, pain medication, um, and having a prescription from the hospital and going to a pharmacy and trying to get the medication, and calling ahead and say, yes, we have the medication. And then when I get there, they look at me, they look me over, they look again, and they say, I'm sorry, we don't have it. And you kind of, well, wait a minute, I called and you said that you did, oh, we're sorry, we don't. And they look at the prescription and then there are a lot of questions suddenly that weren't there before. And it's challenging to deal with that in driving from pharmacy to pharmacy, feeling and treated like a drug addict or somebody just based off of assumptions that are made about me. And so these types of experiences affected me. I think also being a provider myself, a mental health provider, if I didn't have the fortitude to push through it and keep going for what I needed, I could see where other patients would have given up and say, forget it, it's not going to happen. And then Other things can result from that. And so that kind of drives me when I work with other patients to ask them, what is your experience with the health system as a person of color, as a Black man or what, or an Asian woman and having a disability? What are the challenges that you're having and how can we help to expedite that process uh, to get you the care that you need? Ultimately, it took for me, for example, going to the same pharmacy at the hospital because they honored the prescription. So, you know, but I couldn't go where I live. So they're just access issues that and try to work help patients through those.
0: Stories like Mosey's and insights such as those provided by Dr. Norris clearly illustrate the need for a change in access to healthcare. So what can we do differently?
6: I think the thing that we did, which was, I don't want to say a failure, it was definitely a learning experience, was we focused so much on the individual. We put the onus back on the patient. We kept saying, if you just adhere to your medication regimen, if you just change these things within your lifestyle, if you just practice less risky behavior when there are multiple components within the social determinants of health that all lend itself to poor health outcomes.
0: So then what about programs? Are there any notable, more holistic programs or initiatives and what are they doing differently?
6: So the REACH program was funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it was multiple vulnerable populations for coming up with innovative programs of engaging them and also providing means for ways of reaching vulnerable populations for ways of interacting and working with bridging a lot of the gaps. REACH was successful in its own right of having us learn more about some of the additional barriers that we weren't quite sure were in place, but it gave communities and the realism of what works in communities and the strength of advocacy and empowerment it gave us that data for that, right? It also put us researchers within the realm of public health, within the realm of community within communities.
3: One thing I wanted to add was even as a student back in my master's program, the healthy people model has was evolved. They had a 2020 version and now a 2030 version. So I do want to point out that this is it creates areas that we need to focus on of drivers of health. For example, the social and community context, food, education. So it helps to lump these areas together that we can start to focus on with direct programming, as well as again, as Carrie said, to be able to start tracking over time, looking at the influence of these drivers on truly health outcomes in the lives of people. I think it's a very helpful tool for us as researchers and as persons working in the space to to acknowledge and to use. I think most of the programs, especially at the WFH, are
4: focused on capacity building in low and lower income countries. So, you know, diet, outreach, diagnosing patients, identifying those patients, getting them to come in and get diagnosed so that they can then receive the care that they need. And it's our job WFH to go into the data and kind of identify all of those gaps in care. So that will, that includes some of the social determinants of health, but I don't know that, and I'm not an expert. But I am not aware of any programs that that are focusing specifically on social determinants of health. Just because I think there's so much to do at the lower level, it's not there yet. So I think it's coming because we're starting to do a little bit of work. But I think there's so much, so many other things that need to be addressed first that it's probably lagging behind USA, Canada, and the European countries.
5: Care okay, mentioned gaps, but oftentimes the sh- the sheer lack of information and data on minority communities, underserved communities has been and is immense. There's a huge research gap in general, and not even just in terms of inclusion of underserved communities, but in research topics around underserved communities. Now the topic of data disaggregation is incredibly, is getting grounded at the forefront of initiatives like Healthy People 2030. The concept of having more precise data for underserved communities, having data that includes distinct racial and ethnic groups in comparison to broad strokes of you know, the U.S. Census, five categories. But I think it's important to note the historic lack of inclusion of underserved communities in registries and the impact that has on data-driven solutions. If solutions don't have minority communities in the DNA of the registry, then they won't factor them in recently i was at a conference on ai interventions in health and the topic of the future of ai interventions came up and it was you know how ai can really help improve health for all communities but the question of whether those solutions would include a minority communities due to their lack of data was raised in a private conversation afterward of uh, Physician said, there's no need to worry whether AI won't have, will be white heteronormative. It's already the case. So, when looking at data driven solutions, programs, registries, we really have to consider the lack of inclusion of underserved communities in the DNA, in the data gathering process, and in the solutions that come afterward.
0: Indeed, the lack of data makes it difficult to develop solutions for the difficulties that persons of minority communities experience while attempting to access healthcare. That said, there are identified areas of need, along with some strategies for how we can strive toward equitable access to healthcare for persons living with hemophilia. That's next, right after this quick break.
1: Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, Individuals have three times more Factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to this distinct behavior, trough alone may not provide a full picture of Factor IX activity and should be one of multiple ways we measure factor in the body. It's time to look at the bigger picture, to see why a more complete assessment of pharmacokinetic or PK parameters is important. Visit the bigger picture in HEMB.com to learn how multiple PK parameters can play a role in hemophilia B treatment and management. That's the bigger picture in H-E-M-B.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. Welcome back.
0: Before the break, we discussed various difficulties in access to healthcare. Now let's talk about specifics and the change that is possible. How can we eliminate or reduce inequality to ensure equitable access to healthcare? And what do we know from the current research?
2: So I started my research on social determinants or social drivers of health for this patient population and looking at the literature and the inclusion criteria included. We also looked at the clinical prevalent outcomes for bleeding disorder population, including bleeding frequency, chronic pain, cost of treatment, quality of life. And it turned out when we did this literature search, there were about 1,500 articles that we found and we narrowed it down due to the inclusion criteria to 13 articles. And main findings of course included what Donna and everyone else has commented on, the rural location contributing to delayed diagnosis or misdiagnosis, the need for a comprehensive multidisciplinary care team to address not only healthcare needs, but also psychosocial needs, but also the economic burden that this patient population is facing and having to promote comprehensive services, those one-stop shop where people are being seen, but also seeing a social worker, seeing a genetic counseling, seeing a nutritionist, right? So a lot of those things came about and It was amazing to me that we were able to bring awareness and light to this topic, along with these gaps and these inequalities that this patient population faces.
5: I think oftentimes the the impact of geography is is not really considered, which is funny since we're human beings. We operate in a geographic. We operate in. Three dimensions. Where you are matters incredibly to your access to everything. Banking, food, and importantly in our context, a few treatment centers, emergency rooms, and just general physicians. If you look at someone that lives in, in let's say, North Carolina, for example, they're going to be impacted directly by the location of their HTC in their state as well as by any geographic barriers that may be when we say geographic barriers and we say barriers in general in public health and in the community sometimes that can be abstract that can be concepts like economic status that can be things like implicit bias when it comes to geographic barriers that can literally be mountains that can actually be a barrier that is physical that you can touch it can be a river in my home in my adopted home city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The geographic barriers are actual rivers that divide the city in three. And those three separate cities in Milwaukee are ethnic enclaves. They are a Hispanic part of town that's separated by a mile long bridge from a white part of town. So when we talk about looking at that national, international similarities in barriers, when it comes to geography, I agree with you. You can one hundred percent draw similar lines because geographic barriers are sometimes physical. They also are bus lines. They also are public transit to human treatment centers, uh, and I think all of those are cons- they're consistent and unique uh, at the same time. And for example, some of these, I know some of the western states like Montana and Wyoming sometimes send patients across the border into Washington due to a lack of HTC. People that live in Southern Mississippi might send their community members down to Louisiana.
3: I just wanted to expand upon that a bit more and say that across the board, transportation and access, length of distance to health facilities is, as we've noticed, a worldwide problem, but it is especially impactful upon the bleeding disorders community because there are so few and limited the HTCs are where they are in the larger cities. For example, I live in Colorado in Denver and I work with community members who as Adrian said are coming over mountains to get here, but it's not even just for those consistent treatments or infusions that they need to receive. It also concerns do they have an emergency room in their area that carries their factor or carries their specific needs. So it's even that extra layer of nervousness, I think, and the distance to treatment centers and facilities is especially impactful upon this community. And I think that we're starting to come up with maybe more newer ideas of how we can start to bridge this gap, such as Uber health programs and things like that. But it will be definitely, it is a huge undertaking and has a huge impact specifically on the IBD community.
7: Yeah. There's, also, with access, I think there was a particular situation, and this it challenged me to want to work in the health system I currently work in. And so, I was a, as a patient, I couldn't see my car, I don't know if my car wasn't working or something, but I had to drive, I had to make an appointment for my comprehensive visit for hemophilia. So, I took the shuttle that was provided by the health system. So, I'm getting ready to get on the shuttle, and most of the people I guess that ride the shuttle are people that work for the hospital. And so everybody's walking in on the shuttle and then it gets to my turn. And then the, the driver asks me, he says, do you have your ID and the work ID? I said, no, I, I don't. I'm, I'm a patient. And he said, do you have your patient ID? And there isn't a patient ID because there, with this system, there's HIPAA and all of that. So there wouldn't have been one. There wasn't one. I said, I don't have it. There isn't one. And he said, I'm sorry, you can't ride the shuttle. And he, he was misinformed or whatever was going on with him. There were some biases, things. I knew that there. I'd ridden the shuttle many times with other drivers. I just went ahead and got on, which may not have been the best decision at the time. And so I went ahead and got on, and he said, we're not going anywhere. And I said, I'll give you my driver's license. I'll show you that. I said, there's nothing else I can give you. And so then he proceeded to call a dispatch and say that there was someone who got on the shuttle that refused to show ID, which wasn't the case. And I sat there, and I wondered what was going to happen next. This was at the time when a number of Black men had been murdered by law enforcement. So I was thinking, if this police officer gets here, what's going to happen? They got back to me and they said, this will never happen again. And I could see the changes were made in the future when I rode the shuttle other times where there was a police officer happened to be on the shuttle. And there was another person that was just riding and a driver was complaining about another rider was complaining. And the police officer said, anybody can ride this shuttle is a free it's free for anyone to ride. If there's an issue or somebody's just jail or joy riding, the driver will be made known about that and they'll let us know. But you could see, number one, the changes that the system had made. In response to what I had gone through and other people had gone through. This encouraged me. It encouraged me to apply and work for this same health system. And and I could see where I could be a help as an advocate for myself and as a social worker as well. And so that story, when we think about the social determinants, access being a huge one in terms of number one, transportation. Um, If a patient can't get to the visit, if they're told something like that, how many people would have just walked off the shuttle and not gone to their visit? Or they would have been late and missed it? Or they would have said, I can't, they may not have had money to ride the bus. And so with all these things happen. The trauma of the situation where they say, you know, what? I'm not going back to the hospital anymore if they're going to treat me like this. And so these are all the things that can stem from just getting to the visit. And this is what are the social determinants, this is why they're so important
6: and Marissa said a really great and important part, which was talking about the Uber Health program, which I've investigated and had conversations with the folks over at Uber Health. And the limitation there is that they only are in metropolitan cities. So that's still another barrier that's in place for us. So even when we're like, oh, we have a solution, Uber Health, Lyft Health, what have you, these rideshare services and being able to Get access, but they're still in metropolitan areas. So, how do we change that? How do we get them to expand? But the other issue of geography isolation is when we entered into COVID and telemedicine became the thing, these populations still don't have the infrastructure to support Wi Fi to be able to do and perform telemedicine. Some of them economically don't have smartphones, can't afford $1,000 smartphones to be able to have that interaction with their physician or be able to show them any type of bruises or issue that they're having with their joint. So these are all limitations that are combined with geography that provide a space for us to become innovative, for us to talk with community members and talk with partners at the system level to see how we can all come together To solve those issues.
0: Good point about telemedicine. Wouldn't that work for other countries with similar infrastructure related problems?
4: Yeah, during COVID, for sure, some of the lower income, probably lower middle income countries used technology to get education to patients, to show them about physio, like some physiotherapy techniques and stuff like that, um, and have remote visits. I'm not sure that it was maintained post-COVID. And in the low-income countries, I, like the, techno- the infrastructure is not there for that to happen. There's a few countries that did it, whether they continued or not, I, I don't know. But I guess the going back to the global picture, as I mentioned, like, in many lower, so for instance, in Africa, only 6% of patients are even diagnosed. There's so many things before we get there. We're still trying to get those patients identified. Yeah, it's just like a different world, obviously, than what we have in the U.S. and Canada.
0: We have talked about social determinants, such as transportation, and how it can be facilitated for persons with hemophilia. Let's next talk about how we can make a change to the policies that affect social determinants of health in persons with hemophilia.
4: So yeah, so I think on a global level, it's not a priority, but it's on our radar. And now we're starting to look at women with bleeding disorders and make them a priority. So they've certainly been overlooked for forever. But in terms of, yeah, social determinants of health, I think it'll come slowly but it'll come after the other countries. So we're starting to look at the from a data point of view what is it looking like? We'll probably add more data points over time to look at it on a broader level and then once we have the, those data points we can use them to for advocacy and to try to change health policies out there.
6: So what I found is that it although The bleeding disorders and blood disorders community has specific criteria for care, for diagnosis, things of that nature that we're seeing. It's a mirror. It's very much reflected with the general population. Nothing that I'm seeing here is different from what I've seen in diabetes, what I've seen in heart disease, what I've seen in cancer research, what I've seen with HIV, And that's how we know it's systemic and that's how we know it's institutionalized because it cuts across multiple disease states and multiple conditions and the barriers are the same. And so what you see a little bit different is that women being diagnosed in this realm is further behind than other states such as heart disease things of that nature because now we have the red dress campaign right which is all about diagnosing women making sure women understand making sure they advocate for themselves what are the signs of heart attack things of that nature we don't see this big campaign for women with bleeding disorders right now we're just fighting to get them to be considered and a part of the community and so it's, it was very eye opening for me coming into here, coming into NHF and looking at the data, the lack of data, and looking at the stories that I'm hearing and looking at some of the global things that I've read. And then also in talking with several professionals in the field, people who've been working within the hematology for over 40 years or more. It is mind blowing that the same issues cross-cut all of these areas. That's how we know that we have to stop separating ourselves out and saying, oh, but this is blood disorders. Oh, but this is bleeding disorders, and that's cancer, and that's diabetes. I'm pretty sure there are people in our community who have comorbidities, who unfortunately have a blood disorder and a heart condition, blood disorder and diabetes. And so they're balancing all of these things and treatments and access issues and payer issues and issues with getting diagnosis. And so when we look at that, then we've got to collectively work together for problem solving. We've got to collectively work together for Lobbying for better policies and also for educating our community members that we can't continue to operate in silos. Our success will come with a collaborative and systemic approach.
7: I think that one thing we may be missing, I think we understand the trauma piece of it to a degree, the loss that we've had in our community, but I think that we may not necessarily See the gravity of how it affects how it affects not ex- receiving the care that's available. I mean, what I mean is there are a lot more opportunities these days. There are new treatments that are coming out, gene therapy, um, things that will really improve outcomes in terms of prophylaxis. And so there are these things that are available, new treatments, but some of our patients are hesitant to use them. And the medical response could be, no, why wouldn't you want to use this? It's right here. You only have to do it once a month or one time, and you won't have to use this again. But looking back, it's ever in the past and the resulting having lost people in our community, there is going to be a hesitance to want to embrace these new things, even though everybody's saying it's safe and it seems to be medically safe. Oh, there's, there, there's no risk. Well, that's what was said years ago, too. And so understanding the fear the hesitance, the reticence for taking on new things because of the past. I think we understand the past we see the trauma, but also understanding this is why people may be hesitant to go forward, even with things that seem safe to us. And so I think sometimes we may miss that in, t- in terms of why these new things may not be embraced like we think they would be.
0: Trauma in a community can play a major role in, for example, Adoption of a new treatment, such as the case in what Mosey is talking about. So how can the medical community bring about a positive change with regard to access and social drivers of health? What do the next steps look like? Would it be more outreach or getting more resources or managing the distribution of resources?
6: So I believe that it's a mix of all of the things that you mentioned, right? But first of all, in order to get the funding to do the work that we need to do, we have to have the data right? We have all of the qualitative data and that is rich and it is very important. However, we have to have the, the qualitative and the quantitative in place to be able to make the case for studies, for research, to be able to delve a little bit more into the social determinants of health and what's going on and to be able to create what I like to call maybe We'll call it heat, maps of where the disparities exist and maps of what type of disparities. Then and only then can we then move into addressing that Georgia needs this, South Carolina needs this, where can we combine efforts in Georgia and South Carolina? Because otherwise, if we don't have the data to tell the story, then we're just blindly just putting it out and saying, just go for what you know, and that could end up doing more damage than doing it strategically and being very collaborative in what we're doing and very intentional in what it is that we're doing, which is why we are starting at Ground Zero. We're building capacity. We're building trust within the community because we know that there are trust issues. And then we're building up the the data to be able to tell the story from a quantitative viewpoint. And then we're continuing to have our policy days and to advocate for ourselves so that we're continuously present. We're integrating, we're having conversations, we're participating on advisory panels. We're working diligently and side-by-side with lived experience experts to put the work on the pathway to where where it is that we need to be. So it's very base, it's very beginning, it may sound super simple to a lot of people, but it's very complex work and it's intentional to build a strong foundation from which we can then just go from here.
5: And giving our member organizations the tools and resources and trainings that, especially resources to actually follow through on health equity, on diversity inclusion, and making sure that while there's no template that we're giving them the trainings, and the information and resources necessary to reach out to their communities since they're the ones you know, on the ground for working with their local community
0: we've reached the end of the discussion and what a rich and powerful conversation it was our expert panel first defined what social determinants of health and hemophilia means these are non-medical factors that influence patient outcomes including access to health care employment transportation communities and culture for minority and underserved communities the data related to social determinants may not be available but medical community and policymakers can still make good policy decisions based on available data and data from other similar chronic disorders communities some of the tangible steps toward equity with respect to social determinants include proactive and community-based means of outreach to patients for patient education, providing patients and caregivers with transportation or transportation relief, and improving patient experiences all across the value chain of healthcare. Oh, and remember Miguel from the beginning of the episode? He was in a financial predicament with both his car and his medication requiring some financial attention. Well, good news. The social worker at Miguel's clinic helped him to get a manufacturer's copay discount card and set him up with an assistance plan. That's a good reminder if you're in a situation like Miguel's that you are not alone. Talk to your hospital staff to discuss available options. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Global Hemophilia Report. Thank you to our esteemed panel and advisors. Thanks as well to production and the post-production team. And thank you to Sanofi, our featured advertiser, for making the show possible. Visit GlobalHemophiliaReport.com for more and subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and until next time.
1: Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.